Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Many books have been written on the tragic decisions regarding Vietnam made by the young stars of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Yet despite millions of words of analysis and reflection, no historian has been able to explain why such decent, brilliant, and previously successful men stumbled so badly. That changes with Road to Disaster. In it, my guest historian Brian Vandemark draws upon decades of archival research, his own interviews with many of those involved, and a wealth of previously unheard recordings by Robert McNamara and Clark Clifford, who served as defense secretaries for Kennedy and Johnson. Yet beyond that, Road to Disaster is also the first history of the war to look at the cataclysmic decisions of those in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations through the prism of recent research in cognitive science, psychology, and organizational theory to explain why the best and brightest became trapped in situations that suffocated creative thinking and willingness to dissent, why they found change so hard, and why they were so blind to their own errors. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Brian Vandemark. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. You have written a huge new book on the history of the Vietnam War, Road to Disaster. Now, I mean, titles are a little prejudicial. Uh, this is obviously not a, uh, this is obviously, <laughs> this was not one of our best foreign policy decisions in your accounting of things. That's right. And I think most people would agree that uh, even with the passage of 50 years of hindsight, um, the unwisdom and folly of the Vietnam endeavor is uh, patently apparent. I wonder if, you know, th that great film, The Princess Bride, I mean, how many foreign policy mistakes would be avoided if the one character says, you know, never go against this, never go against the Sicilian with death on the line. But the first thing is never get in a land war in Asia. <laughs> I mean, well, it's simple advice, Scott, but it, frankly, it's pretty good advice too. Do you, it, it strikes me that Vietnam may be the war that at least today, with so many people alive that weren't alive then, it, it seems like the war, though, that is most popular in people's consciousness, consciousness that people know least about. I mean, it, 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 we know, don't know a lot about Korea either, the average person. But then again, there aren't the sort of slew of Korea films in popular culture, you know, and there aren't, and, and Korea is not referenced as much. You know, it, it, when, a, when a war like in Afghanistan seems never-ending, people are quick, is this another Vietnam? So, I mean, it, it's interesting that it looms so large in our, in our cultural mindset, and yet most people know nothing about it. Well, that's a, that's a perceptive point. And uh, my response to that would be a couple of things. One is, even though it's many years in the past now, um, there are still millions of Vietnam veterans uh, who today would be in their late 60s and 70s, uh, for whom the war was a tremendously important part of their life. And I think for uh, all Americans of that generation, um, Vietnam in a lot of respects was a defining event for them politically. And in addition to that, why does it echo down the decades for younger generations of Americans? To a significant degree, it's because we failed. And uh, Americans are not used to failure, particularly on uh, that scale. And I think it haunts us. Um, and that's what keeps it pretty uh, prominent in our memory and in our imagination. And that's just not on the ground decades later, receptively, right? That's, it, it affects Kennedy's decisions. It affects, I mean, Lyndon Johnson seems to know this is, you know, he has that great quote you have in the book. It's, it's really easy to get into a war. It's really hard to get out. And yet the, the thought of being the president that lost a war, I mean, this kind of, this on, on the ground at the time from the top down kept us in this situation that was just kept going from bad to worse. Well, I think it's important for people to know and to 
internalize the fact that it was a 30-year involvement uh, from 1945 to 1975. And it was a cumulatively deeper involvement uh, from one administration to the next up through the Johnson administration. So you have a level of momentum and inertia related to America's involvement in Vietnam, which becomes more and more compelling and more and more difficult to detach from. And Democratic presidents in particular in that era uh, felt very vulnerable to the charge of being soft on communism. And I think what that created for them was this extraordinary dilemma, which was uh, the ability of the United States to prevail militarily there was highly problematic. So they were reluctant to become deeply involved militarily. But at the same time, their fear was, I can't afford to walk away and, and lose this. So they're, they're trapped in a bind between don't lose, but how do I win? Yeah. And, and, and Kennedy thought, you know, it's funny, people made a lot of this side bar conversation Obama had right before the 2012 election, I guess, with Medvedev when he said, you know, I'll have a little more flexibility after the election. But mm-hmm. I mean, Kennedy, this was in his mind, right? I mean, like, well, after I get reelected, I don't have to worry about perceptions much and I can be much more realistic. But right now, again, I've seen this. I've seen Truman get lambasted with this. And I've just I got to look tough on communism here. Yes. And when he made that comment privately, I think he also made an assumption that he could continue to finesse the issue uh, through his second uh, presidential run. That, In other words, events would wait for him um, and allow him to stall uh, and then decide to get out after he was no longer uh, exposed to electoral pressures. The problem with that assumption was that events would not wait for him, um, that uh, things began unraveling quite dramatically in 1963 uh, rather than 1964. And he had to cope with uh, a rapidly unraveling situation uh, as a president who wanted to run for re-election. And as a Democrat in particular, in that era of the Cold War, the atmosphere of anti-communism in this country was powerful, and it made Democratic presidents in particular um, highly sensitive uh, to charges that they had abandoned an ally. And that's a charge, for example, that Republican presidents uh, would not face to the degree that Democratic presidents would. And um, it would make it relatively easier for them to speak hard truths because they're not going to be attacked for saying those kinds of things. Yeah, it it seems like that's still with us, right? No matter who the candidates are, if the election is about domestic stuff, people kind of want to be taken care of. Democrats have a big advantage. If the Repub- if if it's hey, we're afraid of enemies outside. The Republicans have the. It doesn't matter who the candidates are. What the, there's just it's something in our psyche. It seems. Well, it, I think that's broadly true, and um, the other tragic element of this is that the dynamics in Vietnam were so uh, fatally flawed and the magnitude of our involvement uh, becomes so immense that the consequences on a human level um, uh, are extraordinarily painful. And when you're president, you wrestle with this this competing dynamic of um, being sensitive to uh, the likelihood of American casualties and then coping with the consequences of American casualties. But again, it's within the context of this bind between don't lose, but the military isn't telling me how I can win. Yeah. I mean, J- Johnson, right? I mean, he at some point, see, he's just asking, look, can we just get somebody in there that's got a strategy here that could tell how to, how, how to whoop some ass here? And, and actually, kind of, I mean, but, and that's it's fascinating that he can't find somebody. <laughs> well, I think to the, the United States military in the 1960s was structured and a thought in ways which were very conventional and very applicable to the Second World War, which is to fight a big war, fight a uh, conventional war, um, go after the enemy, engage them in battle, and destroy them. Um, Because that had worked for the United States military in the Second World War. And Westmoreland and uh, a lot of uh, senior military officers of the Vietnam era had been junior officers in World War II. That's how they had been taught to fight and win wars. The problem was in the context of Vietnam, that approach was uh, dangerously irrelevant um, and ultimately very unsuccessful. And they didn't know how to shift from that to an alternative approach. Yeah. And you kind of have this, there's this kind of like the, the guerrilla kind of Maoist strategy, like, like when they attack, we retreat, right? Like when, you know, when they retreat, we press, when they camp, we strike, like the, the, it's just not. 
yeah, you're, as you said, the, the establishment's not ready for this these kind of tactics. They don't know how to cope with them because they're not accustomed to fighting wars in those terms. Of course, the irony is that if you go back to the early years of American history, effectively, the strategy that the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese adopt against us in Vietnam is the one we adopted against the British in the Revolutionary War. But that was a strategy that works for a week of um, side in a war. Um, and the United States by the 1960s was a very strong uh, force. And they therefore think in terms of uh, someone who is strong. And like the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, the American revolutionists in the initial phase of the Revolutionary War fought the war on Britain's terms. Um, and Washington got creamed. Um, he, he lost, the Battle of Long Island was a disaster for him. His retreat from New York down through New Jersey was a disaster, and it was when his back was against the wall that he got smart and realized that I can't fight the war uh, on Britain's terms or we will lose. And he went asymmetrical on the British in a way which was essentially the same that the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong adopted against us. But that that's a survival mechanism uh, for a weak side in a war, uh, because if you don't get smart, you're dead. And the American revolutionists got smart when they needed to, and the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong got smart when they needed to. Um, in a sense, what they did um, is very understandable. Um, but what's less understandable in hindsight is why couldn't the U.S. military adjust uh, to that um, different approach to war that they adopted? They, they, the military found it very difficult to um, adopt a, a counter guerrilla strategy. Um, and even when they did, uh, the opponent continued to bleed us on the margins, drawing the war out, knowing that in the long run, the Americans would tire of this whole exercise and go home. And the, the communists in Vietnam never fought a conventional war against the Americans. They will fight a conventional war against the South Vietnamese after the Americans leave, um, because they had the advantage, uh, against the South Vietnamese. So they, they were savvy. Um, and I think the United States' ability to adapt to those circumstances um, was was very, very limited. And it just illustrates the, um, the complacency and the sluggishness uh, of a very successful, um, highly skilled um, military establishment. They find making changes uh, corporately difficult. I suspect that remains true to this day. And it's not particular to the United States military. I think that's a function of uh, organizational culture and organizational dynamics as much as anything else. Yeah, and, and you cite some, you know, different sort of in the beginning of the book, a lot of psychological research, and there's tons of work done this now, why people have a tough time admitting they're wrong. You're right. It's not just in the military. It's it's in medicine. It's in education. It's, it, you know, it's it's just so difficult, the human mind with cognitive dissonance. That's just so tough. And you frame a lot of the book in the beginning around Cuba, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and the Bay of Pigs and, you know, Kennedy, you, you say that, you know, despite his advisors sort of saves us from the brink. And that kind of, in a weird way, doesn't humble Kennedy. It emboldens him a little bit in, in sense of his own kind of prowess. Mm -hmm. and, and that, that might have hurt him in Vietnam. Well, I think, the reason I spend as much time as I do at the beginning of the book on Cuba is that it had two powerful effects uh, on the process. One is it made Kennedy and eventually Johnson um, very skeptical about the wisdom and judgment of the senior military officers because the advice that they had given Kennedy at the Bay of Pigs was very poor uh, and the very hawkish lobbying they did to invade Cuba during the missile crisis, in his opinion, was equally irresponsible. And what that created is a dynamic where the civilian and military leaders basically don't trust each other, and therefore they're not going to share their fears and apprehensions in a candid way with each other. And that's the dynamic into which we enter uh, the Vietnam decision-making arena. And it's not the only reason that we ended up failing, but it is a significant part of it. Um, and the other piece is the missile crisis uh, turned out s stunningly well. Uh, given what could have happened and might have happened. And what I think that did was it created this illusion of control over events uh, on the part of Kennedy and his advisors uh, that set them up 
for a big fall in Vietnam. But the, again, those are all human tendencies. Um, the, the cognitive limitations that social science research has demonstrated uh, in the last several decades helps one understand how smart people do stupid things. It helps one understand how patriotic people can make decisions that damage the nation. It helps explain how someone with a very high IQ uh, can still be vulnerable to these cognitive uh, limitations and dysfunctions that can produce poor decisions. Yeah, and you teach at the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, any, at any given time, right, I, I imagine you're looking at a group of midshipmen. And some of the people in that class inevitably will be people making huge decisions down the road. You know, they could be, you know, figuring out. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, inevitably, they'll be some of the people that will be advising presidents, will have to make judgment calls. How do you, how do you avail them of this research where, hey, like, look, you're going to be wrong at certain times. And a lot of times when it matters most, you'll be the least emotionally ready Mm -hmm. to handle it. Well, I've learned uh, over the course of my many years uh, being a teacher that um, showing is more powerful than telling, um, and lecturing someone um, is less effective than getting them to see it for themselves. And as a result of that, when I discuss the issue of Vietnam with my students, uh, I let them see that the story of Vietnam is not the story of bad people making bad decisions or uh, dumb people making bad decisions. It's it's the really disconcerting story of highly intelligent, very patriotic people who mean well, the best and the brightest, as Halberstam called them, making grievously poor judgments. And the midshipmen are smart enough to uh, connect those dots. They know uh, that they are the best and brightest of their generation. They too are highly patriotic. They're highly intelligent and they quite mean quite well. Um, and what I'm trying to show them indirectly, but very powerfully is you too are vulnerable to making mistakes of this magnitude. And I, I don't think you can prevent, um, yourself from making those kinds of mistakes, but you can minimize the likelihood that you will by recognizing your vulnerabilities, uh, in terms of how you process information, what you really know, what you really understand and what you really control. And that's a powerful lesson that I want those people to internalize because you're right, Scott, in every class of 25 midshipmen, one or two of them statistically will be a very senior military officer down the road making or contributing to the making of these kinds of decisions. When you're teaching them about Vietnam, what do you, I mean, how similar, dissimilar are their kind of preconceptions and what, what they have sort of in their head and the story they tell themselves? Like, what's that like compared to the popular, is it similar? Well, it's, it is similar, but remember, they're, they're very young relative to the generation that fought in Vietnam. And for, for them, that's, in some cases, their grandparents' generation. Um, and therefore, their knowledge of the, the detail of the war, the nuances of the war, is very limited. Uh, many of them uh, have inherited uh, myths and preconceptions about the war that was winnable militarily, that the, uh, the liberal media stabbed the military in the back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I try to disabuse them of those myths because I want them to understand that it's, it's not a simple morality tale of bad people producing bad results. And that group of students from their generation need to learn these lessons. I think the other really hard thing to do as a teacher is to recreate the uh, emotional atmosphere of the 60s. That's one thing that's you cannot really do by uh, discussing a lot of facts. Um, unless you really lived through that period, which I did as a, uh, a young boy, um, you can't recreate very effectively and powerfully how incredibly emotionally intense and controversial and polarizing that war was for Americans. And if you don't grasp that dynamic, it's very hard to understand the powerful legacy of the war for people uh, who lived through it. Yeah, I was listening to a conversation, a podcast conversation with Yuval Noah Harari, the author, writes these massive books like Sapiens and stuff. And he was saying that one of the problems with the way we teach fascism, in, in, you know, to our to youth is that it, it's the devil, it's evil, it's awful. And so, but, but you don't teach what it did for the people. That if you were the sort of 
Aryan or or the worker or you were like you looked in the mirror and and, and and intense anxiety and sense of dislocation and needing significance you got it and so that's why people you know he was saying that you know when people start in certain populist wings across the West like when people start having ideas that creep up to fascism they have no awareness of it because it's like well fascism's the ultimate evil I don't mind none of my and so I, it's almost sounds like the same thing with Vietnam right that that the, these conceptions that we have that are that again that we know very little about most of us and yet you know it, it, it looms in the mind this is the kind of stuff that can preclude one from actually learning from it I agree and I think that the tendency of most people is to simplify in order to understand and remember and doing that is human but it can also get in the way of a clear understanding of what uh, happened and your point about um, studying fascism and as an example, I think is a powerful one because I think what you're driving at is in addition to describing what it is and how bad it is, you also have to go deeper than that and explore a very difficult question, which is what are the circumstances that produce uh, support and allegiance to fascism? It's the same is true of terrorism today. Uh, the nasty people who are killing innocent civilians have to be dealt with, but you also have to ask yourself the difficult question, what are the circumstances that are radicalizing these people to the point that they're acting out in that kind of way? Because it's only by doing that that you're going to uh, obviate the problem. Otherwise, you're just treating symptoms. You're not really curing the disease. And it's interesting when you look at like Ho Chi Minh, right, who on one level looks morally superior to the Southern Vietnamese leadership. I mean, he's, doesn't he write like letters to Truman about the American Revolution and his... And, and, and feeling a kindred spirit as brothers in democracy. And there's like, don't get delivered or something. Yes. And again, in hindsight, it's appalling uh, that Truman neither received nor answered Ho's appeal for American support against the French returning after the end of World War II. But again, you have to recreate the, the atmosphere of the times in order to understand that. Uh, in the fall of 1945, when Ho Chi Minh wrote Truman, uh, he was an unknown quantity. And Truman had far, far more pressing issues on his plate uh, that he was dealing with. And what at the time seemed to be a triviality, of course, in the context of later developments, uh, was very important. And I think to myself, how often is that kind of thing happening right now, where something that seems trivial and marginal um, in the context of now, 5, 10, 15, or 20 years from now, uh, people are going to look back at that uh, and say, oh, my God, a huge opportunity was missed. And the other thing about Ho Chi Minh is that he had he had street credibility as a nationalist uh, independence fighter against the French in a way that the South Vietnamese never had uh, with their government. But that didn't mean that Ho Chi Minh was a Democrat with a small D. I mean, he he was the head of a totalitarian political system that wasn't heavily into civil and political rights for ordinary people. Uh, and that needs to be acknowledged as well. But he, he had the street credibility with ordinary Vietnamese, um, again, that his opponents in the Vietnam War and South Vietnam never had. And that was a fatal disadvantage to the United States from the beginning. Yeah. And, and Kennedy knows, right, like in, in an interview with Cronkite, uh, the president, uh, the Catholic president of South Vietnam, as, um, the name escapes me now. Right? Z-M. It's spelled D-I-E-M, but it's pronounced Z-I-E-M. Yeah. Z-M and his, bro- his uh, brother. Knew. Uh, new, Zeman knew. I mean, Kennedy knows these guys are bad actors, and I mean, he says as much to Cronkite and kind of like basically, this is they're not going to have any credibility. It's tough to fight a war, it, as we saw in Vietnam, right? It's tough to fight a war when at home, people are 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 in intense emotional and self involved in protest and really are. I mean. You know, with the self-immolation of the monk in the early 60s, I mean, Kennedy knows this is a problem, right? And He, he does grasp the political dimension of the war. Um, why does he do that? Um, I think in some ways it was his Irish heritage. I mean, it made him sympathetic to the uh, sensibility of those who are fighting colonialism. Um, and he had a sense of detachment. He could sort of step out of the situation and look at it in a pretty clinical way. Um, and he had visited the region uh, as a uh, young representative in the early 1950s. So at that level, he kind of got it. But he was also a political animal. 
um, who was sensitive to political pressures and public opinion and was vulnerable to attacks on the, uh, by the right against him for being soft on communism. So he faced the same bind that Johnson did, which is basically don't lose, but how do I win? I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I, I'm astounded by it. basically the generals in South Vietnam want to have a coup, and Kennedy's traveling or something, and most of the senior leadership is going. And so, doesn't like a a deputy secretary of defense or something gets this message? And sets the stage. Well, there was division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was division within the administration on the policy, and that happens over and over again. I assure you, even today, there's division over Afghanistan within the Trump administration. It's almost a natural function of Washington decision-making. But there was a small cohort in the Kennedy administration who thought that Zim had to go. He was irredeemable. Uh, would never uh, pull up his socks and uh, clean up his act. And they wanted to get rid of him by encouraging the generals to launch a coup against him. And they, they effectively um, pull an end run on the rest of the bureaucracy and the government by having a cable sent out encouraging the generals to um, proceed with planning for a coup. And this was done over a weekend when Kennedy was out of town. And those within his administration who uh, did not want to see a coup launched were not there to uh, block the transmission of the cable. And among them is like Lyndon Johnson, right? I mean, Lyndon yeah. but But these people that didn't want the coup, they weren't. Pollyanna, I mean, they weren't, they didn't think it was as anything to write home about, but they just thought, well, what's the alternatives, right? Yes, like, this is kind of. the devil you know. Right, right. I mean, is, is a, it has profound limitations, but what's out there that's any better than uh, he is? And they all intuitively sensed it would probably be worse. And uh, subsequent events uh, proved them true. Uh, Zim had serious limitations as a political leader. But the uh, cast of characters who took off uniforms and put on suits uh, and ran South Vietnam, and I put the verb ran in quotes, uh, did even worse than he did. Yeah, because didn't somebody say, there's so many governments subsequent to that, that somebody said like in the administration that the the national symbol of South Vietnam ought to be the revolving door, right? (laughs) I mean, this is- It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. I mean, there, there's an element of farce to this in a way. And you look back on it in hindsight again and you ask yourself, how could uh, the decision makers in, in the United States be so short-sighted and not see the patent dysfunction of that uh, regime? And I think the answer to that is they probably did, but they didn't know uh, how to get out of a mess that they were deeply into at this point. And Clifford, who succeeded McNamara as Secretary of Defense, um, once told me privately, and I do quote it in the book, where he says, Brian, getting into a war is a thousand times easier than getting out of one. 
And I think all of America's presidents, beginning with Kennedy and then Johnson and Nixon, um, ultimately confronted the, uh, the painful truth of that observation, that even if they sensed that our commitment there had fatal flaws, um, how do you disengage from that? Um, and I also point out you know, this sunk cost fallacy that social science has demonstrated again and again, which is when you've um, made commitments, the tendency when things are uh, dire is to uh, not cut your losses, but to double down. And that just perpetuates and deepens the magnitude of the failure. In hindsight, you can say, oh, my God, that's unwise, which it was. But if you're president of the United States and your decisions have led to the loss of American lives, uh, the emotion psychological imperative uh, to do and act in ways that uh, preclude uh, those lives having been lost in vain um, is a powerful uh, driver for the tendency uh, toward doubling down. And I think Johnson was, was vulnerable to that dynamic. But I think human beings in general uh, are vulnerable to that dynamic. If they've made a bad investment, the tendency of most people is not to cut losses, but to double the bet in order to avoid losing the hand. Yeah, like the one mantra at the Texas Hold'em, yeah, at the poker table should be, I'm never pot committed, right? But that, that term, well, I'm pot committed now. No, you have other chips. You're not pot committed, right? Mm-hmm. Chip in a chair and you can win. Like, Yes, right? but the difference, Scott, is that for presidents, those chips are human lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which in, in, one, in some way should make you more reticent. And in other ways, it seems to make it, 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 make it harder to, to, to not double down. Yes. And it just it magnifies the tragedy. And then I think by the end of 67, the beginning of 68, Johnson had fundamentally come to the conclusion that uh, we were not going to prevail militarily. And therefore, he needed to begin the process of trying to get out diplomatically. The difficulty with that is we were dealing with an opponent who had uh, the upper hand and that therefore has no particular incentive to help us get out. Um, we have an ally who is desperately dependent on us hanging around. Um, and that those two factors uh, are a major reason why we end up staying four more years and having a doubling of American casualties, which is extraordinarily tragic uh, when you think about that. Most Americans had begun to lose faith in the war by 68, and yet we're there until 73. Um, and I think even Nixon will eventually come to the conclusion that the U.S. needs to get out. But um, being able to do that when you're coping with an opponent uh, who's got the upper hand and an ally who is desperately dependent on you is highly problematic. And then and yet if you're a soldier in Vietnam fighting a war which the government and the people are basically walking away from, um, think about how bitter that would make one feel that you're risking your life in an endeavor, which is basically an attempt to get out. Yeah, and there's this strange frog in the kettle development of the war, right? I mean, it's strange. Like, before we're even actually engaged actively, right, against the North Vietnamese ourselves, right, the economy ourselves, you go from, like, a 1,000 advisors to, like, 16,000 or something, Mm -hmm. and, and like, from 61 to, like, what, 63 or something? Yes. And and there were still not really... Technically, it's not a foot. We're advising. We're supporting. We're you know, and then it just eventually you're full on committed on the ground in ways that that gradually you're like, well, how did this happen? Yeah. Well, those two metaphors, the slippery slope, and quote one thing leads to another unquote, uh, are very powerful uh, mechanisms. And I think in Kennedy's case, uh, he was being pressured by the military in 1961 to send in U.S. combat troops. And he sensed intuitively that's not the answer. But he's also, again, he's a democratic politician who doesn't want to be savaged for being soft on communism. And the irony is that by denying the military their wish to send combat troops, he appeased them by agreeing to sending more and more advisors. But that creates some momentum of its own too. And another paradox is that he thought by sending larger numbers of advisors, that would stiffen the South Vietnamese's ability to fight their own war. Of course, the effect of more and more American advisors is to get them to lean on us more and more. Um, and then when you combine that with the coup against the M, um, that puts tremendous pressure on Johnson 
because after Kennedy is killed, Johns has to make decisions about a situation that's rapidly unraveling due to a significant degree to decisions that Kennedy had made. No, at least rhetorically, right? The, the, the gravitational pull of, of, of increasing commitment to Vietnam, right, is the domino theory. And look, we're engaged in a, in a, in a real ideological struggle Mm-hmm. against communism and and yes. and so i mean how much of that is rhetorical and how much of that i, I mean is there the aware how much awareness is there well okay this wouldn't be the end of the world but if 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 one domino falls here or did you know do they believe that is that believed as much as it's said i think there's a minority of people within the administration who make that argument which is it's a loser walk away it's not the end of the world but the vast majority of advice that the presidents are getting um, is that our word is at stake, our prestige is at stake, uh, our dependability as an ally in the world is at stake, um, the willingness of the Russians to not to make mischief because they think we're a pushover is at stake. All of those things are going to drive them uh, to maintain a commitment because the, the ideology, the dogma of the domino theory um, is very, very powerful. And the Cold War is over now. The Soviet Union has collapsed. It's hard for people today to grasp the uh, the mental chains that that kind of thinking could put on people. Uh, but it was very powerful. And there's a, a point, right, where, I mean, Ho Chi Minh's influence is a little waning. And just like we're the proxy for the South, Russia and, and China are advising the North Vietnam. And, and some people want to go the Russian way and de-escalate things a bit, right? Because Russia's kind of trying to dial back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And China's saying full full press, and the Chinese strategy wins out. Well, one of the ironies of many ironies related to Vietnam is that uh, many American policymakers were utterly convinced that the aggression um, being committed in Vietnam by the North Vietnamese against the South Vietnamese was a put-up job uh, by the Chinese, that the Chinese were goosing the North Vietnamese to do this. Um, the reality, of course, it wasn't known then, but it's become known since, is both the Russians and the Chinese were uh, essentially advising the North Vietnamese to be careful and to cool it, because the Chinese certainly didn't want an American army on the border of North Vietnam with China. And the Soviets, after the missile crisis, are determined to uh, avoid another big showdown with the Americans. And you, you think to yourself, that seems so different than this perception of falling dominoes and the monolithic nature of communism, which it is. But it also illustrates the, uh, the um, extraordinary dangers that go with uh, thinking based on assumptions that never get questioned. Because those, for example, the assumption about the monolithic nature of communism had some merit at the end of the uh, 1940s. But by the end of the 1950s, Russia and China are in divorce court, uh, and yet we're still continuing to make decisions based on uh, this assumption that somehow or other all communists throughout the world are taking orders from a radio shack in the Kremlin, which simply wasn't true. It's interesting too, right? Like Kennedy, a guy like Kennedy, like if he'd said, "Get me a Vietnam expert," there weren't a lot of senior Vietnam experts accessible. No, there right? were experts, but they weren't at the senior level. Um, and I, when you reflect on that, it it makes painful sense, which is the people who know a situation the best are those who are closest to it. Um, and for, I'll use the uh, analogy of Afghanistan. Today, the people who know Afghanistan the best are those who walk the streets uh, of Kabul and other parts of the country. They are not parked at high levels in the Pentagon, the State Department, or the CIA. And their information and insights get pumped into the system, but they have to go through a whole lot of filters and levels uh, on the way up. And presidents don't have ready access to their expertise. And it, it creates a dynamic where they're making decisions based on very incomplete information, dangerously incomplete information. And you can say, well, in hindsight, shame on them for not reaching out to these experts. Uh, there is an element of truth to that. But they're also very, very busy people who are juggling 18 balls at a time. And that doesn't create us the luxury of, for them to um, practice this kind of outreach. And, and the generals are, uh, the senior leadership, it's not as though 
they're not competent people. I mean, they may be filtering it ideologically, but it doesn't seem like they don't know anything, right? I mean, they're they're extremely competent professionals. Absolutely. I mean, they're patriotic, they're intelligent, but they also have their biases and prejudices. And if these insights from the on-the-ground experts that are being filtered up to the bureaucracies contradict their assumptions and their prejudices, uh, they can turn it off. And uh, I think that that's, it's regrettable, but it's almost inherent in the nature of bureaucracies and it's human nature. All of this uh, drives home the um, the limitations and the fragilities of decision-making as it really is. As I pointed out at the beginning of the book, most people assume the rational actor model, which is these decision-makers have all the time in the world to ponder every scrap of information before they make a decision. And the reality is they are extraordinarily busy people under immense pressure and stress who are compelled to make quick decisions with incomplete information. It's funny. The London Times, I think, in the early 20th century had an essay contest. And the, 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 the question that had to be answered by the submissions was, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton's his submission is, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton, right? Two-word sentence. But there's this sort of traditional Augustinian anthropology, right? Original sin, yes. a, a, a really attentiveness to a, a modest conception yes. of the human yes. condition and capacity, right? That, yes. that it sounds like if we had just had more, if you could just, a, a, a little more St. Augustine and some Calvinism, <laughs> the yes. top might have helped. Well, I agree with you. I think the humility... Um, and an awareness of what you do not know and do not control um, is healthy um, and uh, very useful when it comes to making wise decisions. But the reality, Scott, is that most people who play politics at that level uh, have a lot of good qualities, but humility um, and self-reflection and uh, detachment usually are, are not what I would call in their skill sets because they're ambitious. They've gone a long way. They're very successful. Um, and that militates against this self-awareness and humility that uh, is so important. I've, I've heard David Brooks say, too, that, you know, it's interesting. A lot of good politicians have this amazing emotional intelligence they exhibit campaigning, right? That, that, that they're able to work a room and remember this and names. And, and then when they govern, it's panacea, myopic. Like, is it oftentimes the same very skills that brought them to where they are are shut down on the policymaking? Well, I think also that's a dynamic which uh, they're less familiar with and they control to a lesser degree. When they're on the campaign trail, uh, their emotional intelligence kicks into high gear. They're very intuitive. They, they know how to relate to people uh, in the pursuit of votes. That's a world that they understand and can control but the reality of decision-making in the, uh, in the real world of Washington is these are highly intelligent, capable people who are dealing with circumstances and issues that they don't control. Um, and oftentimes there is this illusion of control. But if we're honest with ourselves, um, all of us are vulnerable and susceptible to wishful thinking, um, denial, uh, those kinds of uh, vulnerabilities that can contribute to very poor decisions. And again, there's no fix to that other than to admit that you are vulnerable to these shortcomings. It's never going to eliminate um, the vulnerabilities, but it mitigates them. And that's one reason I want uh, decision makers today and in the future to read the book, because it, it, it's their story too. Because like McNamara and Rusk and Bundy and Kennedy and Johnson, uh, they're all highly intelligent people who mean well and want to serve the nation well, and yet they can and oftentimes do make bad decisions. You can't protect yourself 100% against making those kind of decisions, but understanding that you're vulnerable to those kinds of mistakes is going to lessen the likelihood that you're going to inflict damage on the country you love. And McNamara, it seems like to be this, he's uniquely, I mean, you knew him, you've you've worked with him. He, he, you know he's uh, he is the symbol for the best and the brightest, right? Of Camelot here in the early '60s, and he's the icon. Yes, and, and now I mean it, again, this is one of those things where it, it where it, you write, you know, you write so well and in such detail and depth about this. And again, 
we reimagine this. It, it's almost like a sketch comedy. Here's the bright kids from Harvard coming in. Here's McNamara, whiz kid from industry with not crunching numbers. You know, like, and we think, oh my gosh, this is going to go badly. I mean, but how is it perceived on the ground at the time? You know, because I think now, again, we, we revision it, revisionist lenses, we look at it as, oh gosh, everybody thinks they know everything. But, but I mean, they did gather smart people. They did. And um, I want to take your points in, in sequence. Your first one is an accurate one, which is, I think, the tendency on the part of many Americans, even to this day, is to villainize this crowd. Um, and there's psychological reasoning for that, which is when things go badly wrong, you want to blame it on someone. Um, and by blaming it on someone and putting the, the blame on someone else, it, it, it frees you from having to look at your own limitations or, or your country's own limitations or human nature's limitations. It's classic scope scapegoating, right? You, you yeah. take the scapegoat, you send him out of the camp and our, our sin is expiated. Yes. We're a good people. Yes, and it's it's flawed, but it's human, a la Chesterton. Now, your other point, um, I think that t there was hubris uh, involved. Undoubtedly, that's true. But as I try to point out in um, the first full chapter in the book, when they come into government in early 1961, um, they are the best and the brightest. They have extraordinary records of accomplishment. That generation had survived the Depression and uh, won the Second World War. Um, and they, I think Bundy put it pretty well, which is their sense of their own ability to fix things was very strong. And their sense of their inability to not fix some things was very weak. Yeah. And, and you relate, I mean, McNamara never went to the Vietnam War Memorial. In public, he only could go at night. Yes, I, I mean that is so tragic. It uh, is for him and, and for the veterans of the war and those who who died in it. And what was it like spending time with him? I mean, were, were, did you ever feel like confessor at certain times? I reflect back on that often now, and um, I ask myself sometimes why was he willing to talk to me? Um, and I think it's nothing special about Brian Vandermark in particular. I think what I did was I listened without judging. Um, and I think that's what he needed um, because Robert McNamara's harshest judge was Robert McNamara. People didn't see that and they did not know that. Um, but the, the um, remorse and regret that he felt about the poor judgments that he made was very intense. And he lived with it for the uh, remainder of his very long life. And I think there's a cautionary tale in that too, for everyone who dreams and schemes about becoming a big player on the Washington power scene, um, check out the uh, life of Robert McNamara. And that power of non-judgmental listening. I mean, we are in such a tribal culture today and we are, we are a more maybe permissive culture, but certainly a less gracious one or forgiving one. And, and, and that sort of what you're talking about, that non-judgmental listening that could open a guy like that up without more of that to public figures, we'll never learn from the boondoggles, right? Unless we're able to give them spaces to be, uh, uh, self-critical. Yeah. Self-critical. Yeah. I mean, and, and to have the grace you, you have to kind of, it takes courage to see yourself Oh as, gosh, as, 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 as flawed and, 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 and as tragic. flawed on an issue with those human consequences. Um, I do talk about in the book the fact, and I believe this very strongly, that in the Washington power game, um, the blame game is a popular one, but the blame game is never directed toward the mirror. When something goes wrong, it's always someone else's fault. You put, you cast off on other people, you uh, settle scores in your memoirs, uh, et cetera. And that was a quality of McNamara's, which uh, was extraordinary, which was he, he got the magnitude of the blunder and he got his personal responsibility related to that. And he came to own it and he came to own it eventually publicly. Uh, and that is an extraordinarily rare thing uh, in the real world of Washington. Uh, now, he remained silent for a very long time. And at some level, people have pointed out shame on him because if he had come out against the war publicly shortly after he left the Pentagon, 
um, it might have helped. But that's true. But I think what people don't realize is that he he was traumatized in his own way by the war. And his coping mechanism for the trauma was to shut down. It doesn't excuse his silence for 30 years, but it explains it. Yeah. And, and how many people... It- Often do do that in, in trauma, right? I mean, everything we know about trauma now, which is a lot more than we've known in recent decades, you know, like th- this is a common response to everybody uh, that everybody it is, d- does. It's a human response to stress. Well, I hope that people will learn from your really thoughtful history of the of the road to disaster that was Vietnam, and again that people could learn not just from what you write, but from the non-judgmental spirit in which you write it so that we would not be condemned to you know, these further kind of uh, roads. And if we, if we get down them or are able to you know, see that we've got more choices than maybe we think. Yeah, and remember too, you know, the, the implication of the title is a, is a deliberate and important one. The road to disaster can be paved with good intentions. Absolutely, yeah. And everyone, or most everyone, has good intentions. Yeah, and and yeah, and, and, and the the road to hell is paved by often, right? Yes. Brian, thanks for writing the book, and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Brian for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Road to Disaster. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.